Thanks very much. Well, it is great to be with you and it is particularly wonderful. It's a, it's a real privilege to be able to share with you in the scriptures. So um, let's bow our heads as we, uh, as we seek the Lord's truth. Gracious Lord, how we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself. We know that uh, without that revelation, we have nothing. We are without you and without hope in this world. But Lord, you have not left us to ourselves. And so Lord, as we've heard your word read and as we now get a chance to look further at it, we ask that you might apply it to our hearts by your spirit, that you would strip away every distraction, every distraction, and cause us to focus solely on you, that you might be glorified in our lives as we live them for you and your glory. Amen. So, the turning point. The turning point, you've been uh, going through the first half of Mark, we're about halfway through, so it's almost right to say it's the turning point and uh, you've heard about it in the reading uh, that we've just had shared, but uh, as we've been making our way to this point, this turning point, we've had a significant presentation going on, a presentation in regard to the outrageous statement at the beginning of this gospel. I'm sure you've heard it. I'm sure you've probably heard it so often that you, you've got it memorised. This is the gospel of... Sorry? On the count of three. One, two, three. Very good. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. An astounding statement. And the rest of what we've been reading and what you've been studying over these past weeks is either going to show that to be the case or not. We come to a very important point tonight in the Gospel. But to this point, we've been having the proof of this statement laid out and laid bare before us. But of course, it's not just been about the miracles about the, the, the teaching, the parables and all of these things that you've looked at, we have been witnessing just as much as we witness the gospel of good news and the transformation of those who receive it, we have been witnessing a study in unbelief. Jesus has been having a running battle with the Pharisees. Those who see themselves as the ones appointed as God's closest confidants, as his servants, as the builder of his kingdom on earth, as the ones who will let people know when the Messiah has come and not beforehand. And so we read in this, we heard just read to us now from verse 11, it says that the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus this is straight after he's just fed 5,000 people with a few loaves. I mean, like, we're talking 
The best that came through Moses was a very, very inedible manner. I mean, they grumbled because of it. Let me tell you, they ate better in the wilderness that day. And you can't work out who this guy is. The Pharisees come and begin to question Jesus, to test him, and they ask him for a sign from heaven after he's just done this. Unsurprisingly, he sighs deeply. says, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. And with that, he leaves them, gets back in the boat and crosses to the other side. And here you have this clue as to what's going on as we witness the revelation of both good news and bad news. This is becoming very relevant for us people. Because we've passed a tipping point in our own society whereby for many, even if you have opportunity to articulate the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it for them will be an offence. An offence. You will be disregarded. And so with that in mind, we need to think, what's really going on here? Because I don't know if you've noticed, but have you seen all the examples of we've, as we've gone through of times where Jesus is healing people and then telling them not to say anything? He stops the demons from talking about him. He speaks in parables so that the truth will be hidden. There's a whole lot of stuff going on in the background that often we struggle to get a handle on. And we see it here in chapter 8. Jesus leaves there, sorry, we read in chapter 6, if we go back a bit, we get another clue. Jesus left where he was, went to his hometown, Nazareth, and many who heard him there were amazed. But what was the nature of the amazement? They say, where did this man get these things? They asked after listening to his teaching on the Sabbath. Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judith, Simon, aren't his sisters here with us and they took offense at him and we begin to see what's going on as we work out the nature of this unbelief you and I need to do the same Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 after having just said do not judge lest you be judged he then says do not cast your pearls before swine let me tell you, you've got to make a judgment or, should we say, a discernment to work out who the swine are. But make no mistake, Jesus is doing just that here. Jesus is deliberately obscuring so much about who he is from Israel, from God's chosen people. And by it, he is revealing the most terrible and dreadful place you can possibly be as a human being. And that is given up to your sin. When we think about our sin, when you think about the way in which God's Spirit strives with yours... And you, if you're anything like me, have been kicking and screaming most of the time. 
as he's pushed you into truth, pushed you into grace, pushed you into mercy, pushed you into righteousness, renewed your mind that you might be, your conscience might be purified from dead works to serve the living God. He's thrust you into these things. And at times the battle's hard and you think, oh, this is too hard. Let me tell you, if God's spirit is striving with you and with your sinful flesh, rejoice. Don't look at your sin and go, oh, there's no way I can possibly be God's. I can't possibly belong to him with the stuff that's going on in me. No, if God is striving with you, then you are blessed. Because let me tell you, when God gives you up to your sin, as it says thrice times in Romans 1, then you are seeing the revelation of the very wrath of God. And that is what's going on for Israel. What continues there at Nazareth is that Jesus says to them, a prophet is not without honour except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. And there we have another bit of a, a, a thread and a theme that wanders its way through this first half of Mark. You know where he keeps on saying, oh ye of little faith? He sees and he heals someone says, your faith has made you well. You know these kind of passages? You know, like um, he says to the disciples in the boats, you know, oh you of little faith. All of these kinds of things. And yet at other times he lords, that's L-A-U-D, the faith of people he comes across. But who are they? Now, there's an interesting study. Let's just have a quick survey through Mark chapter 4. Sorry, through Mark chapters 4 through 8. And uh, let me just fix up my phone so it doesn't keep doing what it's doing. Um, chapter 4, we see at the end of the chapter, after he finishes the parables, we see uh, the first boat, the king of creation. Nothing to fear here. Even if that storm is one hell of a storm, even if it's demonic in its nature, you've got nothing to fear here. You have the king of creation in your boat. What are you worried about? Have you realised that? If you have the king in your life, why do you get afraid? Why is there anxiety, fear or dread? Chapter 5, we, have, we start with the garrison demoniac. I don't know if you realise, but I think this is the first apostle. This guy whose life is just horribly destroyed by darkness. And he's transformed by Jesus. Sitting there in a quiet mind at his Saviour's feet. And it's an astounding thing because what is everyone else told that's healed? What are they told? Shh, don't say a word. But what's said to him? Do you remember? Go and tell your family and all those you know how much the Lord has done for you. But where did he go and do it? Did anybody notice? The Decapolis. 
the despised region for true Israel. Decapolis is the ten towns, the region of the ten towns. It's a despised area. And he is sent there and given permission to speak. Then we see raising of the dead, healing of the outcast, amazing things, which I'm sure you've looked at. Chapter 6, he feeds all Israel. All Israel. Remember there were 12 baskets taken up at the end? Just remember that uh, these things, because they come out again in the reading that we just heard read to us. It's... It's underlined that this is a remote, this is a wilderness location. And here Jesus is, effectively, if you spot the, new, the, the, the number there, number 12, Jesus is feeding all of Israel. He's feeding all Israel. It's like God with his people in the wilderness. Second boat, the king of creation once again. Nothing to fear here. I mean, this time, as we know from one of the other gospel accounts, um, he doesn't say, you're safe in your boat. He actually calls Peter to get out of his boat. You can be anywhere, and as long as your eyes are on your saviour, you are secure. Chapter 7, the Syrophoenician woman's faith, the healing of her daughter from a demon. It's quite amazing. Do you remember that, how... Jesus shows that his priority is the Jews, the people of God. But she comes up with this amazingly humble, yet powerfully faithful comment where she says, Ah, oh, but Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table, the master's table. And in that she is putting herself lowly. She knows that she is not one who should inherit these incredible promises that are given to Israel. But she knows that even if she gets the crumbs, that will be enough to transform her life. I so often hear people say, Oh, gee, you know, I wish I... You know, in fact, the one that really used to get my goat was when my mum would say to me, I wish I had faith like yours. It'd make me spit. As if it was my faith. Jesus says, if you have faith even as a grain of mustard seed, the smallest of the seeds and so on, you can move mountains. Because the issue is not how much faith you have. The issue is where your faith is placed who your faith is in. Faith looks to its object, not its subject. And this woman's faith is entirely in Jesus. She only needs a crumb of his work in her life and it will transform her situation. Do you know that? Or do you keep asking God for blessing, not realising how much he has given you, not realising the reality that you have been brought into by faith, and that he is, the, the, the Bible is so full of understatements, just like Jesus in the Gospels. It says, my grace is sufficient. Got to be the greatest understatement in the New Testament. What does sufficient mean? What's sufficient mean? Just enough. Just enough. Oh, it's sufficient. Yeah, that's sufficient. That'll do. It's like, babe, that'll do, pig. 
as if the grace of God is just enough for you. It's this deliberate understatement, guys. You have been given the most lavish gift that can possibly be given. And yet we would ask for more. And then we have the deaf and dumb man. Once again in the Decapolis. Very interesting. Chapter 8, he feeds. This time the symbol is not all Israel. The symbol is all creation. Using the number four. He feeds now all creation. Before he heals a blind man at Bethsaida. Once again, the blind man can't speak because he's at Bethsaida. He's right in the heart of Galilee, right in the heart of Jew country. No, you can't say a thing. Let's read it there from verse 18 in chapter 8. He says to his disciples, after they've come away from this and they've got into the boat, they've fed all these people. He says, he's warned them about the yeast of the Pharisees and they're all confused. But he says... Do you have eyes but fail to see, ears but fail to hear? Do you not see what I've just done to the person, the people who are deaf, dumb and blind? Are you in fact blinder than them? Dumber than them? Don't you remember? And then he takes them on a a lesson that's like, for a Jew is like one plus one, two plus two. This is so basic. He says, when I broke the five loaves... For the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? 12, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? See, we read that and just think, I don't really quite get, it sounds like he's making an important point. For the Jews, and this is why Jesus, through the Apostle John, you know, decades later, would actually revive the apocalyptic genre with the book of of Revelation, for a people under persecution. The numbers and the imagery at the root of the book of Revelation are so basic for the Jew, it's not funny. And he is using the most basic of the basic. Okay, We, we, we won't get started on, you know, three and a half and all of that. This is as basic as 12, 7, 4, the number of God, 7. The number of the people of God, 12. The number of creation, 4. And he is showing by it that he is the king of creation. He is the creator. Verse 27 of chapter 8. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. So that's once again, that's out of Israel. Right? He's out of that territory now. And he, on the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? He comes up with a survey question. Who do people say that I am? They reply, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others one of the prophets. And so he's talking about it in general terms. Because the disciples are seeing people's unbelief. Indeed, they're wrestling with their own unbelief. But Jesus then, after the survey makes this a personal examination. What about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? See, this is what Jesus does. 
And it's very important when we think about our own witness, our preaching, if we're called by God to do that. But if not, your witness, in the end, the boldness issue comes that you don't simply hold the truth before people. You actually have to. Who do you say that I am? It has to become specific. It has to be personal. Has that become personal for all of you? Have all of you heard this question? Have you heard Jesus ask of you, who do you say that I am? Because if you haven't, let me underline it for you tonight. Hear the question from your Lord's lips. Who do you say that I am? Because the answer to that question changes everything or changes nothing. We know the response of Peter. He speaks almost as spokesperson for the disciples and says, you are the Messiah. Matthew's account says, you are the Christ, which is the Christ and Messiah are simply the Greek and Hebrew of the same thing, God's appointed rescuer. But Matthew's account says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So this is the first point at which we hear very clearly the confirmation of what's asserted in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This is the good news concerning Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here he is. The disciples are saying this, but it's going to remain to be seen what that will mean for them. One person is going to betray Christ. This man himself is going to deny him thrice. The last time to a, to a humble slave girl, this big burly fisherman. And so it shows that this personal examination, it's not simply cognition, guys. It's not just, have you got the right info in your head? It is about... Has the truth of who Christ is entered into you and transformed your being? Is your life now calibrated with that truth in mind? That Christ has been sent as your appointed rescuer. I'm speaking now very directly and very personally to every one of you. Where is it for you? Who do you say that I am? Jesus warns them not to tell anyone about him. That's at this point. We'll see that that will change. The time will come when it is right for them to be bold. Indeed, Peter, the disciple, would become Peter the apostle. He would be restored after his thrice denial after he was transformed by grace, after he realised it was not about what he could do for the Lord, but what the Lord could do with him. After his life is calibrated according to God's priorities, he then writes this, for in scripture it says, 
See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Peter had every right to be ashamed. The Lord said to him three times, Peter, do you love me? One time for every one of his denials. It cut Peter deeply. But he was getting Peter to say, I am no longer going to build a man be a man that is building a righteousness of his own. I will count that as refuse, as garbage, as excrement in favour of having a righteousness that is solely established by Christ. So who establishes your worth, your value, your righteousness in this world? If it is Christ, you will never be put to shame. You'll never be put to shame. Which is why you can now be like Christ, who endured the cross, despising the shame. Are you good at despising shame? Or does shame still rankle you? Be clear about it, because if shame rankles you, then what's coming in this world will cause you to retreat from Christ. But I pray that you will actually despise the shame and gladly be numbered among those who suffer for Christ. He says, now to you who believe this stone, this cornerstone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This study in unbelief that we see walking alongside Jesus in the early chapters of Mark's gospel, it's centred on the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and we've got to make sure we are not like them. Believe me, we are more than capable of being like them. But you also walk in a world where there are so many other things that, that bear this nature of unbelief agnosticism is those who say i believe there's a god but you can't know who he is or you've got that particularly irrational form of unbelief which is where i once stood which says that god does not exist atheism now that's a really hard barrow to push have compassion for those who do but let me tell you they are dangerous places to be dangerous places Because unbelief is not, when you're talking about proof, we are not talking about proof anymore, guys. There was so much proof for those who witnessed Christ Jesus, and yet so many could still completely reject him. Unbelief is not about a lack of proof. It's about a distorted, corrupted will. To whatever extent that you see that distorted and corrupted will in yourself that keeps you from the belief you know that God is convicting you you need, then cry out to him. Let go of unbelief wherever you see it in yourself. For it, if you do not then this stone will not be good news. It will not be precious to you. It will be the rock that makes you stumble and fall. 
Those who do stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. I put that up there twice somehow. Um, so guys, let me, let me ask you that question and let it move from simply being an open survey question that's quite broad and general in its application. Let's find out what people think of Jesus and let the question be asked of you. Who do you say that I am? Have a listen to this. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous and his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod 
couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! That's my king. That's my king. Amen.